any cloud project I've been involved with, you make a plan and you have a script. More often than not, that plan deviates from your script, especially in the cloud, which is so real-time and dynamic. So we have to adapt and we have to improvise and we have to figure out how can we get the project on track, you know, meet budget and shrink your timelines. Welcome to Altitude, the unsung heroes of cloud transformation, a podcast by Aviatrix. Today, more and more enterprises are moving their business up to the cloud as the race to innovate continues. In this multi-cloud world, IT leaders and teams find themselves behind the wheel where they are confronted with both new challenges and new opportunities. On Altitude, we explore the voices and stories of the people who are overcoming these challenges every day to drive their business to the next level. Be sure to subscribe on your preferred listening app and stay tuned for this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Altitude. I'm Woody Woodworth, your host. And today we have a really cool special guest. Super excited to have him on the show. Nick Davitashvili, who is a senior cloud network architect at Aviatrix. Nick, welcome. Hello, Woody. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Look forward to an insightful conversation with you. That's right. I know we're going to talk about anti-fragility and we're going to talk about metacognition and some other really key skills that cloud network architects need to have to be successful. Um, we can back up a little bit first, though, and kind of ease into it. I know you're a multi-talented individual. You have lived in many different places and cultures, and that is deeply impactful on how you approach your work. Talk to me just first a little bit about your role at Aviatrix and then some of the things you've done in your past that have influenced that role. So currently I'm part of um, Advanced Cloud Services team at Aviatrix here in very cloudy Amsterdam. And uh, until recently, I lived and worked in Australia. That's when I kind of pivoted from being a purely network-centric architect to doing a little bit more on the cloud side and exploring cloud architecture. Now, that was mainly uh, on the enterprise side of things. I was truly enjoying that experience because there were some really interesting projects with edge infrastructure for connected vehicles and you know, predictive maintenance uh, for roads and tunnels based on deep learning and all kinds of industrial IoT. And then we had to build a multi-cloud platform, you know, across two CSPs and do it from scratch and deal with all the, you know, quote unquote, fun connectivity challenges that come with that. Coincidentally, I had to move to Europe. I had Aviatrix people reach out uh, offering this role and I looked into the company and read a little bit about the platform. And it sounded like someone here read my dream diary because one by one, the platform was ticking off, you know, nearly all the problems that I ever had with the cloud networking and, you know, the rudimentary constructs that uh, were offered back then. It really felt like Swiss Army knife for cloud networking, really. Now that I've joined, I keep being, you know, impressed by the breadth of people's knowledge. You know, we have this group of black belts from Microsoft, including yourself, and the speed at which we solve the problems for our customers that they're facing uh, on a day-to-day -day basis and the genuine attention and time that the team invests in solving those challenges is truly impressive. So really having a great time here. Of course, I, I like to meet my guests before we actually record the show so we get to know each other. I think that's pretty common in the industry. And we talked a lot about musicianship and the way that it impacts both your role and maybe kind of the industry as a whole. And it's it's interesting. Of course, I'm a musician. Once you're a musician, I think you're always a musician. And I've had several other musicians on the show, and it appears, you know, not to be coincidental. So 
Scott Rainovich from Futurium and Zach Smith from Equinix, and now yourself. So clearly there's something about performative arts, not just musicians, but anyone that's in performative arts, mm -hmm. really leaning into IT and, and even making it a career or at least a deep pursuit. The subject of today's podcast, if I were to frame it, skills and capabilities that cloud solution architects and anyone that's doing design in cloud really needs to have to be able to build modern capable systems, right? But let's talk a little bit about how performing arts, in your case, music have really enabled you to do that. Music is a huge part of my life still, but I was ushered into music school when I was seven. And that was uh, just something that people did in Georgia, where I grew up. And when I'm talking, when I say Georgia, it's the country uh, in Caucasus Mountains, not the state in US with a 56 foot tall steel chicken. Look, I absolutely despised the music school because uh, uh, my darling music teacher would just jab my finger with a pen whenever I messed up a note on the piano. And that was a huge part why I hated it uh, at the time. So, so yeah, my folks just took pity on me and, you know, allowed me to drop out. And I was very grateful because I, later I got back into it. And then I ended up, you know, getting into bands and moving to more improvised and experimental music. And eventually I stumbled upon Indian classical music. And that completely blew my mind because something from almost another planet for me, because the principles of harmony, the rhythmic cycles that Indian classical music has are very different to what we're used to in the Western world. One thing that was really interesting to me is that it's 90 to 95% improvised, but it improvised within layers of frameworks. So you have a melodic framework and you have a rhythmic cycle, which kind of combined give you the backdrop on top of which you're playing. Every raga, which is this melodic framework, is usually associated with a season and the time of day and the emotion that it's supposed to evoke in the listener. Uh, that holistic approach to music was, was really, really inspiring and interesting to me. The first thing that I've noticed what learning the classical music does is it really puts you in a mindset of delayed gratification because every piece starts, you know, with very slow exploration, which is like very meditative. It's called a lap, and that precedes the faster, you know, rhythmic sections. And this gradual buildup uh, requires both the performer and the listener to be like really patient and you know, savor the intricacies of the raga before reaching the climax where everything's you know cranked up to 11. That's essentially like training your prefrontal cortex to really wait for that second marshmallow, you know, from the marshmallow test. And if you contrast that with the culture in which we grew up, which is you know very dopamine driven, especially nowadays, you know, constantly bombarded with notifications and YouTube shorts. The contrast is like reading a profound novel over days or weeks versus, you know, scrolling through sensational clickbait. But having that spectrum uh, really teaches you to focus and really listen. And that is, to me, one of the really significant skills when it comes to any business, but especially cloud architecture and architecture. You've suffered through years of, you know, courses designed to hone your focus whether it's classical tradition or not. And then you really learn to discern amidst all the information that's coming at you. You know, you extract the themes from the overall narrative and understand the relationship between, you know, supportive roles and dominant roles. And the deeper you listen, the more information you extract and the more you kind of parse the information and the closer you get to, you know, really understanding and maintaining that signal-to-noise ratio. 
you, you mentioned some really critical things here. Clearly, discipline is a factor for mm -hmm. the, the network architecture or any systems architecture profession. Systems level thinking, right? The ability to understand the parameters and guidelines mm -hmm. and boundaries of a system. I think those are all anticipated and expected. Rote memorization, dedication, these things all map cleanly. I think what's surprising is creativity mm -hmm. and improvisation in an architectural role because some people from the outside looking in might think that architecture is a very rote by the book, by the numbers <laughs> profession. And how does creativity and improvisation really make a big impact? So that's something I think we should think about. Again, the ability to be patient and to listen and to anticipate. Mm -hmm. And there I think comes into the customer reaction side, right? In order to be a good architect, you really have to understand the customer problem and you have to wait for their use case and their pain point and their scenario to build. And mm -hmm. sometimes this is not a single session journey. Sometimes this happens over the course of weeks or even months <laughs> as you work closely with customers and they build trust with you and you know, you find out really what makes their business work. Oh yeah. So do you have any comments about that? Yeah, look, I think you 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 raised improvisation as a surprising one, but I think with any cloud project project I have been involved with, uh, something that I mean, you you just start out, you make a plan, and you have a script. More often than not, that plan deviates from your script, and like your CSP, especially in the cloud, which is so you know real time and dynamic, you might have you know better way of doing things suddenly appear. You know, some cloud provider created a transit gateway or a new construct that suddenly makes your thing, makes your architecture, forces your architecture to shift and mutate. Many different versions of, oops, something new happened as we've been working on this. So we have to adapt and we have to improvise and we have to figure out how can we get the project on track and maybe, you know, mid budget and shrink your, shrink your timelines. And uh, a lot of people think that improvising is just you just go out and just play whatever comes to mind. But actually, it's a, it's a skill and it's a skill which is built on, you know, practicing being in that moment and being aware of what's happening around you and making those judgment calls and executing. Uh, in fact, I think it's unlike any other human activity because from a neuroscientific perspective, you're just stimulating a bunch of, you know, neural connections like you have auditory processing and motor coordination, you know, emotional evaluation, decision making, all firing at the same time. And it's almost like overclocking CPUs for a performance boost. With group improv, you're basically overclocking your brain because it's just a state like no other. So what do you think people that are just getting into architectural roles or aspiring to architectural roles and might not have this kind of interdisciplinary background that, that you and I have, what would you say to them to help them kind of grow their career and get them on the right track? What about ways they could think about learning or systems of knowledge that, that would help them? Well, firstly, to wrap up the music uh, idea, I, I feel like writing music and writing computer code are not that different because uh, it's all about having a little vision or a spark of an idea and then just seeing how you can make it happen. On the other hand, calling what we do computer science is like calling surgery knife science because software really belongs to the world of ideas, like music, like mathematics, and I feel it should be treated accordingly. Any person that has done art, it doesn't have to be music, they have that idea in them of creative exploration and testing ideas just to see what happens. And I think that is a 
really useful thing to tap into. Going back to metacognition, I feel like in many fields, there's an obsession really with, you know, raw data and facts. What's often overlooked is, you know, this need to just zoom out and, you know, like really look at the context because mere facts devoid of, you know, context uh, can be misleading. I mean, the proverbial turkey, you know, is fed year round by the farmer and thinks every day that the farmer is doing it out of love. But on the day before Thanksgiving, there's a surprise, right? So facts without this metacognitive understanding, they kind of made the turkey assume a reality that was kind of fa fatal to the turkey. I feel like it's almost like our brains have these, you know, departments of, or, or domains and someone might totally get a concept when, it, when it's about, you know, health or medicine, but be completely lost when the same idea pops up in economics or everyday life. And that's pretty wild. But we're just wired in a way where we don't, uh, you know, always connect the dots outside of the usual familiar settings. The trick I found for myself is just, you know, questioning and doubting things. Uh, and I find that really refreshing and it seems to help because I've got this habit of jotting down my thoughts, you know, like in a journal and everything I really ever grasped, you know, came from reflection of that. So unless a fact like really blows my mind the moment you see, you see it, it's it's kind of, it's just information until you, you know, sit with it, mull it over and figure out where it fits in your life. Whenever I come across a statement in this journal that feels too absolute, like I, I really try to challenge it. As an example, I catch myself myself thinking, building a centralized DMZ in the cloud makes sense. And then I pause and rewrite the same sentence with a question mark in the end, you know, like building a centralized DMC in the cloud makes sense, you know, like, oops, that's a surprise, right? Oops is a sound we emit when, when we improve. If we're not surprised, we're not really learning. All, all we're doing is really we're adding new information, but not really updating our understanding of the world. And when it comes to cloud architecture, I, I think that reflection on things is really crucial because rather than reacting to what's in front of you and, you know, going for some point solutions that work for now, but without, you know, deeper understanding, uh, that can really backfire. Systems thinking, metacognition, it kind of lets us zoom out and, and see the whole landscape. The goal of that is, of course, to build systems that are ready for whatever future uh, shows at them. Because good architecture is like, you know, I almost imagine it like a thin layer of ice upon a deep ocean of entropy and chaos. Two thoughts about that. And I've said this statement before. This is my first thought. And I've said it again which is that the men and women that make good architects and cloud are willing. And we just talked about this with Susan Henricks mm -hmm. in our last episode, are willing to, to embrace mistakes, right? And that's your question mark. They're willing to question themselves. They're willing to question the existence of a standard pedagogy or idea, right? And maybe also some improvisation there. They're willing to explore and go against the grain a little bit and take risk. Because to me, cloud is all about, from an architectural perspective, instability or chaos. Like you said, you have to be willing to think about taming entropy or containing entropy mm -hmm. or working within the fields of, of uh, entropy. Because everything that you're going to build in cloud will quickly be changed. Mm -hmm. So the mindset is build it to anticipate change build it to anticipate chaos, build it to be anti-fragile in that context, right? And we'll get to anti-fragility in a minute, but as you can see, I think we're close to 
understanding what it really takes to, to approach ENC fragility from a design perspective of cloud. That more traditional dyed in the wool architecture roles build something to be a monument, to be a legacy, to be perpetual. And I think that paradigm shift from going to, I'm going to build something out of stone or steel, like the Empire State Building that will stand the test of time, versus I'm going to build something that's designed to be completely plastic and will be dismembered and rebuilt. Difficult for some people to, to embrace that paradigm shift. And I've talked about that before. The second point I wanted to make is that I also just did, uh, did a recent podcast with Rob Deweese, who's Director of Network mm -hmm. Architecture at Kindrel. When he hires good architects, it doesn't matter to him if they've gone to community college, if they mm -hmm. went to Harvard, what their education and background academically looks like on a resume. He's just like, can they be a critical thinker? Can they solve the problem? Are they willing to be creative and do they know themselves well enough to be brave and take on the task. I probably mischaracterized that a little bit, but it was basically like, you know, I don't care about the academic BS. Can you solve the problem? Do you have the mindset to, to solve the problem? Oh yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, I think forcing surprises on yourself, putting yourself in situations where you get daily surprises, whether you seek them or not, is the best recipe. You, you can force yourself into, uh, like you, you can put yourself in an environment, go to a place which is strange, like Australia for us, it was really strange when we went there. Be there, uncomfortable, be surprised until it starts to feel like home. And when it starts to feel like home, find another place which is strange and stay there until that feels like home. You know, this is a bit extreme. Not everyone is gonna sign up for that, but putting yourself or your design or your architecture in uncomfortable situations is a recipe for making them better and making ideas better. Because if people can decouple their ideas from their personality, they can really put that idea out there, put it in a boxing ring and let other people do things to it until it becomes stronger and better. And that is the key of getting to a good architecture. Talk to me about anti-fragility now. I know that you have been doing a lot of work in that, that area, that discipline for a while. And as a cloud architect, how do you think anti-fragility should be approached in cloud? Given everything we've talked about, about the ability to be metacognitive, the ability to expect change, the ability to let entropy and chaos be the norm. Anti-fragility to me, right out of the box, sounds like the antithesis of entropy and chaos, right? And at some point, enterprise needs this. They have serious apps and serious workloads they mm. need to run. So it can't all be chaos and entropy, right? It, it, it There has to be some foundation somewhere or survivability or reliance so they can deliver these services at a very high level. So how do you approach that from cloud? What is your thought about how do you begin with an anti-fragile system? If you're doing like a landing zone deployment, what do you what do you think about first? So it's a love-hate relationship with entropy, really, <laughs> because, because it's supposed to be the opposite of fragility, right? And it's supposed to be the opposite of chaos. But any anti-fragile system typically consists of fragile subsystems. Obviously, under stress, fragile systems are supposed to break, while anti-fragile systems are supposed to get better. And when I say get better, I don't mean they're resilient or robust. I mean they gain from disorder, right? And if you think about it in the cloud context, when cloud first appeared, I thought, look, this is a golden opportunity to develop and operate anti-fragile systems. Because what do we consider a disorder? 
in a cloud, right? It could be a security breach. It could be, you know, we try storms from badly tuned timeouts. But when you think about all of these versions of uh, how disorder rears its head in, in a cloud, and you kind of reframing to, like culturally reframing to being anti-fragile, and it's not just about systems. It's, it's, it's a socio-technical concept where your team is acting as an anti-fragile team. And hence, they build a system which is closer to anti-fragility. So the reframing, the cultural reframing that's happening is that the anti-fragile system loves the error, right? Because traditionally, we view errors as, as a plague to, that we need to eradicate. And there's a good reason for that, right? You, they cost money. It's time-consuming to find the bugs and repair them. And you can hardly forecast when and where they will occur. But if you slightly change the perspective, you can see them as an intrinsic characteristic of the systems you build. Because any complex system, including biological system, has errors. Like we have DNA pairs that are not properly copied or cell mutation and such. Any software system of reasonable size and complexity, including obviously the cloud, will naturally suffer from errors. And once we acknowledge the necessity of the existence of those errors in these systems, it kind of changes the game a little bit. Because if you look at human interaction with systems, on a day-to-day -day basis, it's us providing instructions, writing code, setting configurations, and essentially telling our systems what to do. So there's this ongoing dialogue, but it kind of feels one-sided because we provide all the input. So when the incident occurs, it's actually the system talking to us. It's signaling a deviation. And thus we can learn about the system. It, rather than fighting it, we, it kind of uncovers and shows us where the, where the concentration of chaos can be in the system. And there are operational principles, there are design principles that kind of help you build your system, your team, your organization in a way which benefits from learning about the systems through the errors. In fact, one of the primary principles is failure induction which is creating errors in the system. I know we have folks here, especially on the engineering side, that have worked at Google for a long time. And they talked a lot about Google's, to put it crudely, appetite for destruction, meaning that they embrace the idea of letting errors happen. And even in their production systems, they anticipate and want a certain amount of chaos because, to your point, that's how they learn about the system. And that's how systems continue to improve. And if there's some system that isn't having errors or appears error-free, then it's not that it is error-free. It's not that you're listening in the right way or that you haven't designed it to speak in the right way. Yes. And look, the side effect, the beautiful side effect of all of that is that it actually helps you improve your monitoring. Because time and again, you know, people kind of spend countless hours setting up, you know, intricate systems with alerting and monitoring solutions. And then when the incident happens, they discover that they don't trigger as expected. But by inducing controlled burns and controlled chaos, you can build that confidence and ensure that the system is tuned, your alerts are relevant, they're actionable, and that gives you that high degree of confidence when something goes wrong in the real world, your monitoring system won't let you down. Is the idea with CICD, and I believe that's continuous improvement, continuous development, to unpack that acronym, which just floats around everywhere in our industry, is that part of anti-fragility insofar as if you embrace error as a cultural team ethic and imperfection as a way to constantly learn, 
that then feeds into the continuous improvement. Thus, you're always iterating and developing, right? So could you say that most DevOps people, if not all of them, are anti-fragilists at some point? Or that's a big part of their DNA, right? DevOps philosophy itself is anti-fragile inherently, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of tooling, whether it's chaos engineering tooling, you know, or other tools that are associated with anti-fragility, they are built in a lot of CI/CD pipelines because it just makes sense. You want to test continuously. You want to experiment continuously because anti-fragility is more about experimenting than it is about testing, really, because you want to find failure modes that are not obvious through hypothesizing. And it touches security as well. There's this concept of continuous security testing in CI/CD, which with every deployment, you can run a port scan, look at the results of that port scan in an automated manner. And if something is wrong, remediate it sometimes automatically, sometimes manually. I mean, there's a lot of parts of the system that it touches and security is a significant aspect in this because some of the some of the failures that we can induce manually, you know, like make your storage bucket public or make an unapproved port, uh, open an unapproved port in a security group. You know, it's an experiment. But anti-fragility is wider than just chaos engineering because in addition to operational practices, it also has design principles. While chaos engineering is primarily technical discipline, anti-fragility kind of covers a wider, more holistic area of humans and systems and maybe organizational structures. The one place I think where business leaders and business owners get pretty tense, understandably, is embracing this approach deep in the infrastructure level, what we all refer to as rate zero. Things that simply cannot fail, or if they do, they must fail so quickly and quietly in the night that you don't notice that really, you know, are foundational to all of the apps and services above. Networking, obviously, DNS, data storage. I mean, yeah. these are your critical ring zero systems. <laughs> it, is Aviatrix helping these businesses kind of get on board with anti-fragility at the infrastructure level? And, and if so, how? Or is that a total misdirection? No, it's not. Actually, I've been thinking a lot about how what we do actually helps people become more anti-fragile. And I guess I can give you several examples of where Aviatrix sits in that space. Well, firstly, look at how much telemetry Aviatrix Copilot is collecting. How precise is the control that we can have over the network? We can see that kind of shaping up in the concept of gateway elasticity and auto-scaling gateways. But data that we have in Aviatrix Copilot can uh, be used for a lot more in the future maybe with some machine learning source on top of it, can really seek out the errors and change the network to become more robust as a result of that, which is the primary tenet of anti-fragility. Then you have the ideas of how we do, how we modularize things for people, because modularity is one of the primary patterns of anti-fragility as well. Right. Because, you know, local failures can cause problems but do they cause problems and do they cascade out of that subsystem? Right. And, and, and that plugs into de decentralization and distributed cloud firewall, right? The idea of distributing not only your failure risk, but also security risk and your security controls. You have idea of loose coupling, essentially, you know, decoupling the control plane from data plane mm -hmm. or using software-defined routing to optimize your peering behavior 
without the risk of cascading failures is a big one. Redundancy, which you know sometimes uh, seems ambiguous because it seems like a waste of of money, but uh, it only seems it seems ambiguous if nothing unusual happens, except that something unusual happens usually, and especially in the cloud. And so we've got these, you know, HA principles, whether it's for data plane or the controller and copilot, the way we do redundancy, but not too much redundancy, which is yet another problem of complexity, right, is a good example of that as well. So yeah, I can give you many examples of what I see in the platform where I go, okay, okay, that's anti-fragile and this thing is anti-fragile. And, and again, when you see so many properties of anti-fragility, it's very hard to you know, not love the thing that you're building. Nick, it's such an amazing treat to talk to you and explore the deep capabilities and spaces inside your mind. I mean, such a profound thinker. I would love to see more thought from you on this subject, be it something published uh, or, or, you know, white paper blog. I, I think it's just tip of the iceberg stuff. I'd love to have you back to explore it further, man. So I am overwhelmed with gratitude to you and Bella, and Jennifer, and Mike, and everyone who's doing a lot of work behind this podcast. And yeah, you know, go aviatrics. We're going to change how people build in the cloud. I think we're going to change it for the better. Thank you, Nick. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Take care. We'll speak soon.